That Friday before she got killed, something happened that she said, I'm never going back there again. In December of 2020, we covered the tragic case of Julia Nicewinder, a 23-year-old student at Eastern Michigan University, whose lifeless body was discovered submerged in water in the bathtub of her apartment on December 11, 2012. By referencing online reports and a timeline given by Julia's grandpa, we sought to paint a picture of Julia's life and the homicide which cut it short far too soon. But after releasing that original video, several members from Julia's family reached out to us to say that there was far more to the convoluted story. Although the people we interviewed may disagree on many aspects of the case, they all have one thing in common. They want justice for Julia, especially as the eight-year anniversary of her passing has come and gone with the murder still remaining unsolved. Today, we'll be letting them tell their sides of the story. To briefly recap the main points of the case, Julia was last seen and heard from on Sunday, December 9th, 2012, and authorities believe her attacker struck later that night. When Julia didn't show up to her classes or job on the following Monday or Tuesday, her family and roommates grew concerned and notified police, who then entered the young woman's private room inside of the shared apartment. Julia's belongings were strewn about the room, but no valuables had been stolen, although a pillowcase and Julia's keys were missing. When authorities discovered her body in the bathtub, they noted that her clothes had been cut off, and she appeared to have been bound. Julia's death was ruled as asphyxiation associated with drowning, but investigators believe the oxygen deprivation occurred before she was placed in the tub. The main evidence found at the crime scene consisted of a pair of bloody latex gloves, as well as suspected seminal fluid. Julia's stepfather, Jim Turnquist, became a person of interest in the case in part because there were no signs of forced entry at the crime scene, which led investigators to conclude that the attacker was someone Julia knew personally. As well, the seminal fluid was reported to be consistent with someone who could not have children, and Jim had allegedly previously gotten a vasectomy. However, when the latex gloves were tested, one DNA sample matched Julia, one was determined not to belong to Jim, and the third was too weak to provide any data other than that it belonged to a male. Although no DNA was found linking Jim to the crime, and he reportedly passed two polygraph tests. Authorities allegedly continued looking at him as a person of interest. One reason for their concern, which we will delve deeper into later on, was that a best friend of Julia's had allegedly come forward and told law enforcement that, two years prior, Julia had confided in her about inappropriate behavior Jim had allegedly exhibited. However, this same friend came forward two months later and denied ever making those statements. Still, in 2015, Jim was charged with possessing inappropriate images involving minors 
after his laptop was searched as a part of Julia's investigation. In the trial that followed, Jim's attorney argued that there was no real proof that Jim knowingly possessed the illegal material, that several people had access to the laptop, and that the prosecution was unable to establish the age of any of the individuals in the photos. Detroit Free Press reported, quote, The twelve-member jury, composed of four men and eight women, deliberated for 44 minutes before returning with the not guilty decision. As of 2021, no substantial new leads have been established, or at least they have not been revealed to the public, but speaking with Julia's loved ones has provided us valuable insight into the case. We spoke with Julia's twin, Jennifer Nicewender, and their mother, Kim Turnquist, who was formerly married to Jim Turnquist. To this day, both Jennifer and Kim stand behind Jim's innocence. They told us a bit about what kind of person Julia was. Julia was a protector of Jennifer. I mean, that, you know, that's for sure. Um, and she was the more, I want to say, aggressive in the way, meaning, you know, don't mess with my sister because I'll take care of you. So Julia was that kind of person, like, leave my sister alone. She was, I mean, she was that kind of person, but she also, you know, where she loved everyone and, and would, you know, fight for anyone that she cared about. We also spoke with James Nicewinder, the father of Kim Turnquist and the grandfather to Julia and her twin sister, Jennifer. He says that in the years since Julia's death, he has been working to gather information and send it to law enforcement in the hopes that progress will be made in the case. Me being retired, I have a lot of time to do a lot of digging, you know. I've contacted lots of organizations. I've talked to the Michigan State Police, the FBI. I downloaded a copy of the FBI manual for forensic labs and how... So I could send you a copy of my timeline stuff. As far as I know, it's as factual as I could get. Finally, we also spoke with another of Julia's loved ones a woman named Barbara Robinson. She told us a bit about her relation to Julia. I guess I should say, I am Julia's cousin by marriage since the year 2000. And I mean, the twins were like 11. I've known them that long. So I, th I think they always kind of looked at me and Gary like they're cool older cousins that would hang out with them and do cool stuff with them. Julia was super close with us. Everyone's primary goal is to spread awareness about Julia's case and seek justice. But it has brought difficulties for the family. When you go through something like this, in which I never, ever thought I would, you know, go grieve my sister, let alone um, her case still remain unsolved, definitely does a lot to a family. And the detectives even said that after, right after Julia passed. They said, it's gonna, you're going to have a lot of divide in the family, you know, because they... They dig so much, and they do this, and they do that, and I mean, they did a lot. They've done a lot of damage over the years, and it's not something I don't think I'll ever forgive. The things they've said, and you know, there's where they're supposed to be family. I mean, I tried for a long time, tried to be supportive and stuff, but the second I said, like, you know, hey, the cops have said you haven't went and talked to them. I talked to them, I talked to them. You're lying, you're lying. You're out, you're done. They don't talk to me anymore. And all I said was, hey, the cops said you haven't talked to them. 
they just they just want to fight and it's lies and it's wrong and you're wrong and they just push you out and that's it tell me why tell me why it's a lie Kim and Jennifer emphasized that they did not agree with a few aspects of James's proposed timeline of what happened to Julia an issue which we will be discussing in depth I just that's why I'm frustrated and it's, this isn't the first time I've been frustrated with him as you can tell we're not on speaking terms with him because no matter how many times we try and tell him like you were he was in Florida he was lived in Florida for a long time now with his wife down there he wasn't here he didn't see Julia till the days leading up before she passed he every time I, we try to explain to him like no this is what happened he's like I don't know who he talks to or what he's doing, but he's not even following up. That's not right. And and no matter how much, how many times we tell him, we're like, I don't know where you're getting this. Where are you pulling this from? We, we're like, no, we know the facts. We followed up with our sources, just like we have been before we did this. And so, I mean, I don't know where he's getting this stuff. Starting with some of the smaller details, they contested James's story that Julia had brought a stray kitten into the apartment with her original roommates. Kim informed us that Julia had simply gotten matched with new roommates based on a personality test. These new roommates will come up again later on. One important note that James had mentioned and that we discussed in our original video was that Julia often chose to stay at her grandma's house when she came home from college. James explained that it was his understanding that since the two bedrooms at the Turnquist house were already full as the parents and two daughters lived there, Julia simply preferred getting her own space in Grandma Rose's extra bedroom rather than having to take the couch. Kim commented on this subject. Julia did live with her grandmother. That was only at her choice. The part that um, some people got wrong was when Julia was 19, she was kicked out of the house. So what happened was the twins, being two girls, and I don't know if you have any children or, you know, what it's like to be around two girls, same age, bicker, fighting, and they had a little, you know, they have a little sister, and they were just, they just wouldn't let up. I had told them both to, you know, pretty much shut it down, stop arguing. Well, they kept it going, and then Julia went into the bedroom, and I did say to her, Julia, if you don't shut your mouth and stop the arguing, I'm going to smack it. Now, remember, the twins are 19 years old, so they're not little kids. They're 19. They graduated high school. So she kept running her mouth, and so I went to, like, smack her mouth because I told her I was going to smack her mouth. She drew her fist back, and that's when Jim came in the room and said, oh, no, no one's going to hit my wife. She didn't hit me. Nothing else happened there except for I said, you know what? I said, get your stuff and get out. So that's how it came to her living at her grandmother's house. It had nothing to do with Jim or anything else. It had to do with her running her mouth. And then when I asked her if she wanted to come home three days later, she said, no, I don't want to come home. And I said, why, Julia? She goes, because grandma lets me do whatever I want. When she would come home from college, she did go to her grandma's and did stay there because she chose to. And it's not because she didn't have a place in her house or there wasn't enough room for her. She just chose to do that. Kim and Jennifer went on to walk us through their understanding of the weekend, which led up to Julia's passing. So I had been at work. Julia had come home. Then when we got off work, we went, me and 
Jim went and got a real Christmas tree because we wanted to surprise the girls. So we got the real Christmas tree on that Thursday. That's when we all got together. When Jennifer got off work uh, that night, we decorated the Christmas tree at our house, at the Turnquist house. Hot chocolate, we decorate the tree. You know, that's our family time of doing that. So that's what started off the that weekend was that Thursday. A quick note to keep in mind before you hear the next clip is that at the time of our interview, James was under the impression that the family decorated their Christmas tree at the Turnquist house on Friday, just before Julia headed to Grandma Rose's house. However, Kim and Jennifer told us that this family decorating actually occurred on Thursday before Julia babysat for Barbara. After presenting this discrepancy to our interviewees, everyone later agreed that Thursday was the correct date. All the same, James maintains a theory that something important could have occurred at the Turnquist house before Julia headed to her grandmother's. His updated timeline reads that after Julia left Barbara's house on Friday, quote, Julia did visit Kim at work. Evidently, they went shopping, and then later there may have been a possible blow-up at the Turnquist house. Julia left the Turnquist home and went to Grandma Rose's house. She told Rose that, I'm never going back to that house again. Julia was helping decorate Rose's tree that evening when Kim dropped by. Kim went to Rose's to help, but merely sat there as if to hear if Julia said anything about the family blow-up, almost like she wanted to hear what Julia might have to say. End quote. That Friday before she got killed, December the 7th, Julie went over to Grandma Rose and made a statement, something to the effect that I'm never going back there again. Something happened. Everybody has their own theory. And it probably was in the afternoon whenever they, the family was decorating their Christmas tree at Kim and Jim's. That got Julie in the frame of mind when she went to her grandma's that she said, I'm never going back there again. Barbara also seemed to speculate that some type of family blow-up could have been a catalyst for what happened to Julia. The motive, I think, is that when she went to their house to do Christmas stuff and came out upset, something happened there. I don't know if she found out something or confronted them about something. I, I think he silenced her. I think that was a, a, an entire, like, silence ploy. We asked Kim and Jennifer to respond to this theory. Thursday, December 6th, the night we decorated, we didn't have any sort of argument or nothing decorating our tree. And then the no. next day was grandma's. There was no, and that's why I don't know where they're getting this from because even everybody there, my grandma, my aunt, my uncle were all there. They they all, and we've talked to them about this since this aired, and they're, they all said the same thing. They're like, where where did this come from? Like this, Julia never said that when she was at my grandma's, I'm never going back. We never had any sort of fight or blow up while we were decorating our tree at our home. It was I, always a happy time. Like, I don't understand. I don't, I, it, it, it boggles my mind where this stuff is coming from. Kim and Jennifer also told us in their initial note that Grandma Rose claims she never said Julia wasn't going back to the Turnquist house. Moving forward, Kim and Jennifer continue to explain how the rest of that fateful weekend played out from their point of view. 
So she had come home for that weekend, but she had to work on that Saturday. So every time Julia traveled, as being a parent would when your child is traveling far, the last words that I had ever spoke to her was, Julia, I love you. And I said, be safe. And it wasn't unusual because of my retail management job and Jennifer's job and Julia's work and job. I would go a couple of days without talking to them because our schedules just were different. That's why that Friday before she passed, that was the last day that I had ever talked to her. I will tell you right now, we did not, at least I didn't know right away that Julia had went to work and had gone on a date that night. I did not know that until after Julia had passed. They, yeah, he was one of the first ones interviewed and um, they, he was cleared. Yeah. That's what the detectives told us. So then that brings us, so like Saturday apparently, as far as we know, Julia went to work, Julia went on a date, and then Jennifer and Madison went to go see Julia. Yeah, we went, you know, that part of the story is true, We, you know, in, in the video as well. We did, me and my little sister did go up and see her and have lunch with her while she was working. She did walk me around, and once she was done, she walked us out. I remember she didn't put a coat on, and I remember it was cold, and she walked me and my little sister out to my car to say goodbye. So, and then after that was when she went home, and she did some studying, and I did talk to her on the phone here and there. Um, right, so which leads us into, I had come home from work, and Jennifer and Madison had come home, and Jim was, you know, at the house, too. I I was in the be in in my bed in my and Jim's bedroom wrapping presents. Eventually, I went to bed. I think it was probably around eleven o'clock. And just as I has told everyone before, I had bl I have bladder issues. I have a very weak bladder, so I you know would get up all hours of the night. So if anyone had ever left my house in the middle of the night. I would know about it because I would have been up. Some people have said, you know, how does Kim know that, you know, when they start talking about Jim, that he never left? Well, that's how I know because every time I got out of the bed, he was there in the bed. We weren't fighting. It was a typical marriage. When all this happened, we were not sleeping in separate beds. The other interviewees we spoke with shared their points of view on this issue and how it pertains to Jim's alibi. Yeah. Their marriage was really strange. It really wasn't a marriage. Um, they did nothing together. She didn't spend a lot of time at home. Many times through their marriage, we'd go up there and visit, and she would come out to the door as we're saying goodbye, and she would say, I don't know how much longer we're going to be together. So for her to be standing behind him, it just, it kind of, it's weird. Really yeah. weird because she really did have a very very strange marriage. Kim and Kim's relationship, I equate it to like a high school relationship. They they constantly fought, pretty much all according to Kim. That's who we would hang around with a lot or see, and they would fight. Oh, we're going to get divorced. We're going to get divorced. They're not getting divorced. It was a constant. It's just a very strange dynamic with them, and the whole thing with Kim as Jim's alibi. Oh. Kim could sleep through a hurricane, first off. She could sleep through anything. So she can't say for sure. She knows he was there. Jim had his own life, and Kim and Madison and the girls and everyone else had their own life. Barb Robinson had been to my house not even a handful of times. When we had big family gatherings, they were at 
typically her in-law's house or someone else's. Barb would not even know if we were sleeping in separate beds or what our relationship was like. I mean, that's what's frustrating again. That all these people want to say all these have all these theories and speculate, and they weren't even there. Was mine and Jim's relationship perfect? It wasn't. But you know what? During this timeline of all this that they're that people are trying to make it seem like it's something more than what it was is you know what there there weren't no issues going on we were we were fine we were solid so i don't understand we later gave barbara a chance to respond to these claims she wrote honestly maybe jim and kim were in a good place that day they were constantly up and down and never knew if they were good or not i think she'd lie for jim and i don't think she'd know if he left all night Julia's murder is believed to have occurred that Sunday night. After that, all communication with her was cut off, and she stopped showing up to her obligations. But one thing that Kim and Jennifer say people get wrong involves Jim Turnquist's cleaning business. So I want to clarify that Jim did have a cleaning company. Julia helped out once in a while, but she was not scheduled to to work with the cleaning company on that Monday, that December 10th. She was scheduled, as far as we know, to go to school that day. Yeah, she had classes and yeah. work that and, day. Yeah, she had classes and work. We asked James to respond to the claim that Julia was not actually scheduled to work at the cleaning business that day. Could be true, it could not be true. Most of the family that I have talked to, uh, including the lady that Julie babysat for during her last weekend, she came home on a Thursday night. She did a babysit job for cousins, whatever, and she ended up spending the night there. Jennifer said she didn't have a job Monday, and everybody else seems to think she did. I do know that from talking to the police and that, that Julie's car, her trunk, contained a lot of cleaning supplies. So that may be true and it may not be true. I can't, I can't honestly say Jennifer lied. We asked Barbara to comment on this issue since she was the woman Julia had babysat for. She wrote, Julia talks so much, so she never told me she was working for his cleaning business that I remember. She told her aunt and grandma that she was working with him that morning. I think that's where that story came from. We asked Kim and Jennifer what they thought about this claim that Julia's cleaning supplies were in her car. She did help him to earn money, but she wasn't scheduled that day. She had cleaned just a couple of times and... We live in Monroe, and she lives in Ipsy, so if it was an account up that way, that's when she would help, and they would meet. They didn't drive together. So, yeah, she always kept cleaning supplies in the car, and they and the cops actually did look at Jim's um, workbook. So if the police are saying we verified all of that stuff, then what don't you understand? James also commented briefly on this logbook. He gave him his appointment book or something. That would be around the time that Julie's murder Regardless of whether Julia was supposed to work for Jim's cleaning business that Monday, she was supposed to work a shift at Walmart in addition to attending her college classes. Julia never showed up to either, which was very unusual for the responsible young woman. In part two, we'll talk to Julia's loved ones about how they came to learn about her fate.